They're all here. The divas, princes, and living legends you should be obsessed with. Sitting down with me. I'm David Goldberg. These are the luminaries. This time, the writer Cyrus Dunham joins me to discuss his memoir, A Year Without a Name, which details his journey through gender confirmation. I hope you enjoy. Cyrus Dunham, welcome to the podcast and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm happy to be here, a mere block from Grand Central Station. I know, yes, in the <laughs> Yale Club, the real uh, cultural bastion of New York City. Is that where we are? <laughs> We're very close. Oh, beautiful. Because I, I always get a notice like, would you like to join the Yale Club Wi-Fi, which is like... Anyways, yikes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I know that I'm catching you kind of early on in the press saga for the book, and I'm really curious what it's like now, because I assume you've had a little distance since writing the book, sealing it up, now you're returning to it. Yeah. So I'm curious, now that this is starting, what you're kind of like feeling, experiencing, now that you're having to pick up the book and look at it and draw from it and talk about it. <clears throat> well, yeah, I mean, I, I basically finished writing almost a year ago. So the, there were edits after that, but the final, the afterword of the book I wrote about, about a year ago. Um, I think like any writer knows that our sense of our writing and its quality and its depth changes so quickly. So there's just the fact of having to read something I wrote. And much of this was written two or three years ago. So a lot of it I read and I'm just like stylistically and structurally, I just have my own judgments, you know? (laughs) Um, And I think I would feel that about anything I wrote. Um, But then there's the fact that this is about like such a deep internal process and that I wrote it during that process rather than looking back on it. So it's also kind of just intense and in some ways very humiliating to go back into all the things that I was feeling and the headspace that I was in. And it, so I have, my writing has changed because writing is like always this living, breathing, shifting entity. And relationship. Exactly. And then also my own sense of my gender and my own sense of the things I want to be working on in my life is really different than it was when I started this book. So it's like I have to re-meet all of these versions of myself that, of course, I want some distance from. Right. I, that's something... I've str- I think like the biggest thing I've struggled with is like making peace with past incarnations, especially artistically, because that's the side that you present to the world. And I'm wondering how you how one does that, like or if you've learned anything about putting yourselves or your past selves in perspective. It's a, that's such a good way of phrasing it. And. In a way, I feel like there's so much overlap between that question in regard to gender and that question in regard to writing, mm-hmm. which also feels really connected to the ways in which through this writing process, I was like, I'm writing about gender, but I'm also writing about the process of writing, and these two things are getting really linked up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I know I don't know. I mean, for me, there's like such an urge to want to make this clean cut or line between who I am now and earlier versions of myself that seem less evolved or that I know are so kind of held back by shame and self-doubt. Right. Um, And so I think a big part of the work of this book and putting it in the world is the work I'm trying to do anyway, which is like accepting that who I am now is in a coherent and continuous evolution with earlier versions of myself. That even if I've changed drastically, 
maybe like this is who those earlier versions needed to grow into. But there's a real urge to see them as almost different people, you know? Um, and I'm trying to work on seeing it as uh, something coherent. Maybe not linear, but at least something coherent and connected. When you were writing it, because I've had this happen when I'm writing where um, – because sometimes I'll read essays at shows or or whatever and one night I'll be like, oh my god, yes, like this is me. <laughs> the world finally knows. And then I'll read the same piece the next night and be like, this is not true at all. This is totally not – like I don't even know who wrote this anymore. And I'm just curious because it's so – this was so like um, – deep and so um, charged and clearly you were really trying to parse out so many kind of intrinsic things about yourself. I was just curious about when you were writing it, what that was like for you. Yeah, especially because so much of, I feel like so much of the book is about working through like repression and all of the stuff that we push down and all of the lies that we tell ourselves about who we are. So there were definitely moments in the writing where I felt like I was getting so real. I was like, I'm getting into the deepest shit. (laughs) And then now I reread it and I'm like, wow, this is like complete fake surface crap, you know? Mm -hmm. But I think my hope is that in my life, it's like we keep cutting deeper and that the work of going into yourself actually never ends. So of course I, I just want to know, I like tried my hardest to reach a really raw and authentic place, but I'm sure in 10 years I'll, I'll read this book and feel like there was so much about myself I hadn't gotten into yet. And I think it just kind of has to be that way. But as long as I know that I'm doing the most I can in terms of that, like deep dive internal work at every moment, I think that that's what's most important to me. Something I, I, one of the things I love most about the book is that yes, there is sort of like a hero's journey of you kind of finding your personage, but I once you find it, you do make it very clear of like there is a cycl- cyclical nature to this, and yes, you can get you get more of yourself, but you still have to. You're still often muddled and confused and it still goes through waves and you still – you get more of yourself each time. But it doesn't just end with you being like, OK, I did it. I'm me now. You know, <laughs> Here I am. <laughs> exactly. And I, and I think a lot of that's coming up again now with the book being out in the world because mm-hmm. this – the book chronicles this process of sort of like looking for a container or a name or a way of being that could hold more of me. And I – and getting to this place where I could take on the name Cyrus, which felt so significant and so incredibly hard won. And now I'm dealing with what it feels like to see a book in the world with that name on it and ask these questions all over again of like, am I giving that name away? Mm-hmm. Um, am I going to, a lot of fear about, am I going to have to go through this process again? Does taking that deep, private, sacred process and sharing it with the world in some way dilute it or cheapen it? And I don't believe that, but I think I have fears about that. I was just a friend of mine just had a really big show at Joe's Pub and it went so well. It was this big moment and they really opened up and we were emailing and they were saying like, after that, I don't think I want to do anything ever again. I'm exhausted. (laughs) Like I'm so – and I was like, God, that is a part of it. Just not just – because yours is not just a huge artistic release but it's also wrapped up in your identity. But there is this thing about like – when you do something like this, there has to be some sort of a refractory period or yeah. some sort of a like, 
okay, what if, what even am I anymore? Like, what mm-hmm. just happened? And and maybe if we can be more upfront about that from the start, it won't be as much of like a horrific shock when it happens. I don't know. Totally. I think for the first few months after finishing writing, I needed to just not write and just kind of be and feel and like chill and hang in my body and not mm. turn everything into narration, you know, um, and write without feeling like it all needed to go towards some larger storyline. Because even though I knew that I wanted to write a memoir that I guess kind of troubled some of the genre conventions around resolution Mm. um, and linearity, I think writing a memoir always kind of imposes some storyline or arc onto your life, whether it's happening in the moment or whether it's something you're looking back on. Because if you're writing like with the sentence and a paragraph and the, you still need to write a book that feels like a book. People want to read a book. Yeah. Um, it's not experimental poetry where you're like totally rejecting stuff around story. So I was definitely aware of how the sort of forces of like storyline, uh, kind of seeped into my life and I needed to like chill on that. (laughs) Yeah. That's very healthy. Um, I want to talk about, masculinity in the book. There's obviously a lot <laughs> to discuss with that. I want to start with, because I've been thinking about it nonstop, you invoke, uh, you talk about Mark Wahlberg a lot. You're the, like, the third person to bring this up I'm with obsessed. me, and I'm I'm so glad that this resonates for you. I'm very. It was very important to me, and I feel very seen that it's okay. landing with some other people. I'm obsessed. <laughs> and the, the way you brought it up, it was like, whoa, 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 someone else knows about this because it's just this, there's this thing with him, (laughs) especially in the last 10 years where I'm just like, what has, what's going on in America right now? Because he's so aggressive and, you know, as a gay man, we all like love straight men. That's mm-hmm. like the oldest cliche in the book. And there's so many straight actors who are obsessed with. But there's something about Mark Wahlberg where I'm like, I don't feel safe like being sexually attracted to him because he's so hyper masculine. Mm. And, you know, he's. I don't know. There's just – I don't know. Someone like Chris Hemsworth, I'm like, I think he'd be <laughs> nice to me if I flirted with him. But Mark Wahlberg, I'm like, no, he represents this like darker animus to masculinity. Mm-hmm. And then the way that you bring him up in the book I thought was so interesting is like he's kind of this threshold in some ways. And I'm just so curious how you were able to kind of develop that or start picking up on that. Well, there definitely are a, lo- <clears throat> a lot of like – famous men in public who I was fixated on um, throughout my childhood and adolescence. And I also feel like growing up in the age of Google Mm -hmm. has really weird effects on like the way that one consumes images. I guess if I'd been younger, I could have done clippings and put them up on my wall. But it's, it's actually really strange to be able to just type in a name and then see this archive of every way that they've ever looked and just rapidly consume imagery. And that was like a real compulsion of mine was Googling men and just staring at pictures of men and being like, haircut, haircut, haircut pecs, 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 like right. looking through the pictures. And I guess Mark Wahlberg, you know, there's something a little bit more relatable about like the 
a certain other type of 90s heartthrob, like a, a ri- the River Phoenixes of the world because they have this kind of like innate lesbianic <laughs> yeah. softness. Same with Keanu Reeves, that, certainly. Yeah, that's like more – yeah, like Keanu – there's so many that we could go through. Heath Ledger even, like that's a little more – Imaginable. <laughs> yeah, we can just we could just do a podcast that was just naming different white men with nice hair from the nineties. Um, but Mark Wahlberg was like so. I was just I think obsessed with trying to imagine what it would actually feel like to like be so big and hard in that way, mm-hmm. and like to just move through the world with that. I would just that like to just be able to like pick yourself up and pull yourself up and, like, break things. And he's really aggressive and obviously has this history of, like, aggression and violent outbursts. But then also you can can feel this kind of, like, tenderness and moodiness. And he's a really good actor. Um, You're right. There is a sense with him. I mean, if you think about someone like Ethan Hawke, I think a lot of their allure is that they're kind of neurotic or there's stuff going on. Mark Wahlberg is, Mark Wahlberg is so inhabited. Exactly. And that felt so other to me. Yeah. Um, and it's very, it's like, it's very different. I was always much more able to relate to or imagine being like the nice guy, you know, the good, the like good boy or something. Um, the Google thing is so interesting because I'm thinking like, you know, I wonder if you grew up in the Patrick Swayze era, it, there was a sense of like, you see this image of Patrick Swayze in this movie yeah. or in this magazine and you cleave to that. Rather than this kind of like – it's almost like you can control what this person becomes for you in the Google age. Like you can make Mark Wahlberg into anything because you can algorithmize how you totally view him. And you can consume people in this much more like compulsive, exhaustive way. And also with YouTube archiving things so intensely and Whoa. being able to watch clips of people. I mean I'm sure by the age of 15, 14, I'd watch like – Every single clip of lesbian content in a American television show or film from like 1950 onward, without actually watching the movies, without having any relationship to um, what they were about or them as like art works, I just was like obsessively consuming any imagery of like women being sexual with each other. Something that this book did that I was so thankful for because it's something I really struggle with, but I've never been able to find words for it. Um, And maybe I'm projecting, but I felt like what this book did so well was you talk about um, basically, sorry, I'm having trouble wording this. Don't worry. As you look at people who are inhabited and as you start to circle around your own inhabitation and becoming yourself and, and claiming masculinity in whatever way that that means. There's the fear of, oh, am I going to become part of the problem? Am mm. I going to – does this mean I'm going to become a violator by wanting this? Am I already the violator? And it's something that I've always struggled with like on a fundamental level. Like if I claim power for myself, am I going to – does that make me the abuser automatically? Mm-hmm. And – you, it's worded so well in the book, and I'm just – I wanted to know how you were able to parse that out, and maybe I can find a few passages, but it's so – it's really I, – I, you know, I wanted to thank you for that because I've never seen it worded like that. Thank you so much for, 
for that question. Yeah, I mean, I do feel like the gender mythology that we're taught of man and woman is in a lot of ways inseparable from a victim perpetrator frame um, and from also like a good evil binary Mm -hmm. um, and like a criminal and innocence binary. So for me, all of those things are wrapped up in, in each other. And growing up in a specific time period where a lot of my like women caregivers and role models were shaped by second wave feminism, even if they were in relationships with men, I do think implicitly I was fed a lot of messaging around like men being inherently violent and women being inherently like innocent and superior. And Mm -hmm. I really internalized that um, as I think many of us did. And I was also fed that story. This is, I'm not blaming any individual for this. This is like how society and systems work, but I feel like I was fed those narratives without an accompanying like story around race or class or all of these other things that like affect power and vulnerability. Um, And something that's been really important for me in accepting that like I am more able to, I'm more able to be the person that I want to be on earth in this moment in time as someone who's read as masculine like within that within masculinity i find the space for softness fluidity closeness honesty i don't have an answer for that for why that is and it's just where i'm at but i think i've had to do a lot of work to be like the problem is gender not men like the problem is a binary framework for understanding harm not all perpetrators and I think that those things go really hand in hand for me. It's disappointing in the queer world how much we've adopted. You know, the top bottom binary is right. that. And I know that I understand that in terms of the trans world too, there's a lot of like um with with the language around um, gender confirmation, etc. A lot of that seeps in, mm. and it is—it's really hard because it's like you can't. I don't know. It's like you're coming out of a closet to come out of another closet to come out of another closet in some ways. And I'm sure it will never stop. And I think it's—it's it's true. Like there's the question of cis and trans, but then within the very messy umbrella of transness there's also this other binary that gets policed of like non-binary versus trans or people who experience dysphoria versus people who don't experience dysphoria as if there's like some kind of deep you know like cavern between um people who choose to go through a medical transition and and people who don't it's not always a choice but you know what i mean um and i just think basically anytime there's a binary it's like our duty to push on it, you know? Yeah. And I think that, I think what's so special about the book is what, well, it's what you just said to me, which is like, I actually don't have an answer for this. (laughs) Like, let me just kind of deal with it on my own because I, you do a really good job of basically saying like, I am not um, proclaiming some sort of a monolith here. You're just like, this is where I am in this, which I, I think makes it special and and I think will give it more longevity because you're not 
I don't know. I think it, it, you do a good – I think if you read this book in five years, it won't seem dated because it's not you like trying to be mm. as uh, contemporary as you can, you know? I hope so. <laughs> hope I hope it doesn't feel dated in five years. <laughs> so I wanted to talk about um, another thing you do that was really unusual for me uh, to read. The way you write about dissociation, um, I – I was shocked because for me, it is the hardest possible thing to describe and I've gotten into screaming matches with my therapist because it's like, why are you trying to make me describe this feeling of absolute numbness and feeling like I don't exist and feeling like I'm removed from the world? And and the book has so many incredible passages. Um, there's one here kind of early on where you said um, – it was becoming clear that she, like me, struggled with a secondary analytical voice that prevented her from taking total pleasure in anything. Whether it was sex, a beautiful room, a quiet walk, we were in any given moment until one of us stepped outside it to qualify and undo it. And that's just kind of one passage that stuck out to me. But I wanted to know about the process for you of describing being out of your body, being mm. out of your uh being watch being outside of a scenario and watching it happen beneath you i mean it's it's so paradoxical to write about it mm. because you know by nature you are shut out from the feeling mm. so i'm just curious about that process i think it took me time and i i hope i got more able to do it by the end of the writing process because i agree that it's extremely hard and every scene in here that kind of deals with or touches on dissociation I probably wrote like 10 to 15 versions of. Mm. And so a lot of what I would do is just write it and then rewrite it and then rewrite it and then rewrite it and then kind of go back through and try to see which way of talking about it um, landed or resonated the most. And obviously working with my editor, Gene, was really helpful because it's it's such an internal thing and having somebody being able to reflect back what you're communicating I think is really important but one thing that really helps me and I think is also really connected to trying to write about this idea of transitioning is like relying on the third person because so much of what I feel in moments of dissociation is almost seeing myself as a character or seeing myself as a separate entity from my you know it's weird it's like I see myself as separate from myself that's a strange sentence construction (laughs) Um, but you see this person who you're told is you from the outside. And so letting myself write in the third person was really helpful. And then I could sort of switch it into the first person to stick within the memoir genre. Um, but I think in the future, I'll hopefully be able to experiment more with what it looks like to write memoir in the third person, because sometimes I think that's the most accurate way to talk about how we experience ourselves. That's fascinating. Um, and yeah, and I, I so that's that was really useful for me. That's so interesting because I I feel often um when I've done something or something I'm working on if people compliment it or have something to say, I I usually feel like we're talking about someone else. Um and it can be even a shallow compliment or like a a bigger discussion, but I'm usually just like, "Oh, who are we talking about?" and I I can't there's a part of me that can't always reckon with like Oh, we're talking about you, like you, you, you. Mm. So it's so interesting, the idea of you basically like taking that by the reins and using it to your benefit rather than getting shut out of your own book, basically. Mm, mm, mm. 
how I'm curious, like how early on did you kind of have to stumble with that or did you kind of crack, crack? It actually started. I think I started being able to switch into that when, you know what I I'll go back. When I started writing this book, I wasn't sure that I was going to transition or I mean, I identified as non-binary and I had a lot of repressed masculine (laughs) hopes and dreams and wishes, but, um, I didn't know that I was going to start hormones or change my name or anything like that. When I started writing this book, I didn't know what the book was going to be about. I just knew that I wanted to try to document this period of time. Um, and then when I started feeling really disconnected from my former name, um, I started realizing that just writing the name, writing about this person, Grace, really helped me work through the ways in which I felt so alienated from Grace. Um, And it was almost like in writing, it sort of like created this wedge where I could get more and more distance from Grace until I felt like I was allowed to let the name go. And I noticed that in my writing, I would even write things about like letting her go as if she was a... A, a, a character that I was stepping away from. Um, and I remember when I first started really thinking about and reading about trans people, it would really scare me when they would talk about their former selves or their dead names in the third person. I remember watching a documentary about this Australian surfer named Waverly Windina, who had been a very famous surfer in Australia and then kind of disappeared and, and came back and, and, was open about the fact that she identified as a woman and I watched a documentary about her where she would talk about herself as a man in the third person it really freaked me out and I was like that's so creepy I don't like that (laughs) it really scared me Um, but then I just kind of involuntarily noticed that it really helped me to, to, to rely on on narration in that way it does kind of also it's like a built-in way of honoring back to what we said at the beginning. Like it, it does kind of honor that previous incarnation. And I do – that's important to me. Like I want to honor Grace in the ways that that name, that way of being, that girl is always inside me and a part of me even if it's not what I choose to project to the world like externally or, or you know manifest. But it's – for, for me, it's important to resist – the urge to like bury her mm-hmm. completely. And to be honest, I think that because of the w- things about my family and my sister's visibility, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily have the choice to do that. Cause I was like visible at a younger age in ways I didn't consent to. And I actually have no ability to erase that history. Right. Like I can't go and hack the Google algorithm and get rid of every like mention of grace in the world. It's just not something that I have the ability to do. Right. And I think every trans person deals with like evidence of their former self in bureaucracy in some ways because we live in a super bureaucratic world. So if you've had to, you know, go through like medical care, you've dealt with police or prisons or courts, um, there's always like this evidence of who we didn't consent to be that we have to deal with. I just had a kind of funny and unique experience of it that is very different than the forms of violence that most people have to deal with. Right. Um, but it still was odd, you know? Yeah. I, cause I, even as, uh, just a 
queer man, like as a cis white male, I still have a huge amount of shame with stuff from the past that's mm-hmm. visible. And yeah, I am curious because I I wonder like uh, in your family if I think of something like tiny furniture, I I know that you kind of have these larger relics and I'm I am curious like how you view something like that cuz maybe it is kind of a nice window into a different time or is it jarring like it kind of depends on I mean I haven't watched <laughs> tiny furniture in very long time right probably since like it came out and i was also like 17 when that happened so wow. i wasn't really thinking that much and i didn't think that it would get seen by a lot of people i just thought my weird sister was like bugging me to do something <laughs> annoying <laughs> right um and so i definitely wasn't thinking about the implications of sharing my image um so i think that's a part of it and and now I'm sure if I watched it, I would probably be able to feel a lot of sweetness and tenderness towards that version of myself. But it's hard to see it and not like feel a lot of pain too, just because I know what I was feeling internally. Yeah. And knowing how guarded that all was and how much I wasn't sharing it with anyone um, is just really sad, you know. And I think there's like always going to be this grief and loss having to see. And think about younger versions of myself at like what I didn't get to have, um, and I'm, I can't help but imagine like what would it have been like to be young and feel aligned with myself. Like, yeah, I'll just I'm never gonna get to have been a teenage boy. I'm never gonna get to have been a young man, and I feel sort of embarrassed admitting that out loud sometimes because like I wish that. I didn't feel sad about that, but it's really hard not to feel a sense of grief for what didn't happen, you know? I guess I want to ask your advice about this because something I'm dealing with is like my approach with this is to kind of singe away the past, especially when it comes to relationships. I really just – it's so complicated for me to revisit past relationships from a part of myself that I no longer – really accept Mm. as me and that happens i'm 29 it happens when someone from your past who you were really close with when you were 21 let's say Mm -hmm. invites you to their wedding and my reflex is like no under no circumstances Mm. why would i put myself through that but recently i've been reflecting like is that really all there is you know totally and and i'm wondering like I, i this is me just asking advice like how in terms of relationships from previous eras from your life, how you make peace with that? I mean, I relate deeply. I for a long time had the major brick wall around like I didn't even want to, you know, I mean, I don't live in New York, but I like couldn't even go within 20 blocks of like where I lived as a teenager Mm because I would start to feel nauseous. Like I would start to feel all the feelings of sort of like shame and self-disgust that I would feel. Um, But I think I've been experimenting with with having interactions like that more lately, and it's been a surprising special part of putting the book out in the world is that people from my past have reached out to me who I might not have reconnected with otherwise, and then we've been able to to meet and, and talk and recontextualize things that happened between us, yeah. and that's been really beautiful. Um, but I think like... I don't think I can go into those interactions unless I'm feeling tenderly towards that version of myself. Because if I feel a lot of hatred towards that version of myself, then 
I have to like encounter that person when I encounter like the people that I associate with that time. So I think, I don't know if I have advice, but I think the only reason I'm feeling more able to see people from my past right now is because I'm feeling more loving towards who I was then. So maybe you just have to like wait until you've worked on loving little you a bit more. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Any minute now. Um, (laughs) Well, thank you. I, when I I spoke with Arielle Levy when she wrote her book, The Rules Do Not Apply, which is really a harrowing memoir, and something she said to me was that her past as a journalist helped her write the memoir and because she was able to be a little more exacting and uh, see herself as a subject. And I, I'm just curious about – because you, you have a history not writing about yourself, about uh, – I know you've written about prison abolition, et cetera. And I'm just curious what the transition was like um, of, of doing that sort of thing to strictly writing about yourself and and how it maybe helped you or, or maybe kind of things that you had to get over from mm. that sort of writing to do this sort of writing, anything like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, d- I have done a lot of journalism. I don't think I'm a very good journalist because <laughs> I don't do a very good job obscuring my <laughs> political beliefs. Same. <laughs> so when I, I did do journalism for a few years and I kept like getting into trouble of just not being at all objective. I don't know if I actually believe in objectivity or I don't necessarily believe in the objectivity that we're told. I agree. I think I'm able to like hold the weight of many different people's pain, but a lot of times we're forced to be objective about systems, but the objective position about systems is actually like just as bent in the direction of, of, you know, op- oppression as you, I don't need to explain this to you. And, no, 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 but, no, no, but, um, but yeah, no. I, so I, I think it's really hard in journalism, especially in mainstream publications to do the kind of reporting that I'd be interested in doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had like really funny experiences with publications that I won't name, writing articles about prison abolition and using the term prison abolition, sending the article and getting an edit back that had changed prison abolition to prison reform. And I would be like, oh, sorry, like that was actually meant to be prison abolition. Then I'd get the next edit and it'd be like prison reform. And I thought that was really fascinating because they're completely different ideas. So it made me think about how editing is often also actually about like shifting the entire perspective to a place that can fit better within like what's available in mainstream media. Um, so it was really liberating to write memoir because I was like, well, nobody gets to be an expert on me but me, you know? Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, they can't right. fundamentally edit Which this. is it to say that Jean wasn't sometimes like, okay, let's... Jean is my <laughs> editor. She would just be like, we're going to... I would send Jean these like long exegeses on the way that writing a memoir was producing my own subjectivity and how, you know, the money that I'd gotten to write the memoir was giving me the space to transition. And she'd be like, so great for your journal. Super proud of you. Let's save that for an essay that four to six people read, you know? (laughs) So I needed her to be like, help me with that. But I'm glad about all the writing that I did, even if it didn't make it into the book. And I think oftentimes with books and memoir especially, the final product is like one version of something that could have gone infinite ways. Mm. Um, And this is more like evidence of a very intensive process that I went through than it is like the thing itself. Um, But I, 
I definitely really enjoyed getting to kind of analyze things without some of the edit- editorial processes I'd been <laughs> used to in the fa- in the past. For some reason, this is making me think of. Did you hear about the Fiona Apple Hustlers? Please, no, thing? tell me. Okay, so in Hustlers. J-Lo triumphantly does a striptease to Criminal by Fiona Apple. Right. right. I, and I saw that and I loved that scene. It was yeah. incredible. Fiona Apple um, donated the money from that to um, to races, I think. To, to uh, either – I'm not sure which nonprofit, but um, basically an anti-ICE yeah. uh, nonprofit. And the studio – did not want that getting out, so they they like covered it up. They tried to cover it up, and of course, Fiona Apple, like even from the woods, was like, "Wait, something's not right." Yeah. So she summoned Vulture to do this kind of interview about it. But yeah, there was this thing where it's like, it, it, the the there's so many like systems within systems of like Viacom world and who they're offending that all comes down to like this little moment between Fiona Apple and J-Lo in this movie. I, totally. Well, and, yeah. No moment in media or in depictions of things is ever just the moment because there's so many different interests at play. Yes. And, and I'm very interested as a writer in like pushing the idea that writing is just like a pure endeavor because we are all existing in this like complicated field of influence and we're all also trying to figure out how to have careers and support ourselves. Right. And those those very like reasonable material needs that we can't like think our way out of affect the choices that we make. So I always wanted to be very clear about the fact that like a book isn't just this neutral thing. Writing a book actually affects your life and it affects the life you're writing about. Um, And that's just really important to me. And I'm also really interested in that. And I think there's no way that the experience I'm having now of writing a book about my life and then having it, be something that people consume and having it be in the world and having to speak about that. I think that's really interesting. And I think it's something I'll probably write about in the future. Um, Cause there's a lot to like peel back there. And I always want me- people who write memoirs to really talk about, to reflect on the, the project of the memoir itself and how kind of odd it is. Um, so yeah, I'm interested in it. I just started Samuel Delaney's, Motion of Light and love. Water. One of my favorite books. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm so yeah, excited. So I love it. Yeah. And he opens with this thing where he's like, he tells a story and then he's like, just so you know, none of that was correct. I like just double checked and basically like the year was wrong. My age was wrong. The events were wrong. I could have sworn it was otherwise, but he's like, now that we have that, like, let's get into the book. And there <laughs> is this sense of like, Oh, okay, good. uh, He admits that there's, like, a bigger matrix going on, and we can just kind of, like, be honest about that. Totally. Yeah, he's amazing. He's amazing. I just got – I'm going deep now. Yeah, I I love – I just – I'm reading Dahlgren, and I just finished Times Square Red, Times Square Blue. Yeah, that book was such a – that's definitely, like, one of the life-changing books for me. Which one? Times Square Red, Times Square Blue. Yes. I mean, I I love all his work, but that book – I think a lot of people have the experience of reading that book and being really – changed by it okay thank you because i i feel like the ancestors when i was reading it i could feel like i feel like there's a lot of spirits that he honors in it who are like with us definitely as and here we are on 
we're very close to 42nd Street, aren't we? We're on the yes. other. We're a little bit on the other side of town, but yes, but. I'm sure in Grand Central, you know, oh, their yeah. <laughs> cum is still... Yeah. Oh, my uh, God. <laughs> There's so many images from that book that are just so harrowing that I will never forget that I'm actually afraid to say out loud because they're just so graphic. But the, I'm just going to say the chode man. That's yeah. the one I'll never <laughs> forget. <laughs> yeah, and there, uh, it's been making me think when I've been encountering people in New York since reading it, there is this sense of like... Oh, Samuel Delaney would have like seen something in this person yeah. that I like moralistic suburban Jewish me um, is maybe castigating them for, but like he would have found something really sexy or special yeah, or totally. like vivid about them that I should really pay attention to. It is a life changing book, and it's really he was so able in his writing to honor all different like types of bodies and ways of being, even ones that are seen as like ugly or disgusting. Yes. And in doing that, he I think whether or not he says it out loud, he pushes like a pretty radical gender analysis because he talks so graphically about so many different types of genitals and it opens up the way like yeah. that we're taught to think that there are only two types of genitals. And I think even if he was like if it was kind of goofy, the way that he could be worshipful of so many types of bodies made me definitely be able to have like a more expansive way of seeing my own body. And I think um, what he does is, which I think goes back to what we were talking about yours, you know, I think in the kind of Twitter world we're in, a lot of times when people do that sort of thing, there's like a sense of self-congratulation or like, um, I don't know. I just think if Times Square Red, Times Square Blue came out today, it would be like, Look at what he's doing. And with him, it's not that. It's more him being like, this guy really turns me on and he had this kind of situation. (laughs) (laughs) And it's so radical, but it's not him trying to say, like, that he's some great champion. Yeah, totally. And I think, like, that – I think in your book that 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 aspect is really there of of you being like, this is what I'm into. This is what I'm going through. But you're never trying to, like – Say that you're some paragon or uh, spokesperson. Well, that's this. I really appreciate that. That's my biggest hope, and that's like the sweetest thing you could say. <laughs> but it's hard because the way that it that it works to talk about your work in an interview, it sort of creates the when when individual people get brought forward to talk about like larger movements or groups, it creates this culture of expertise, right? That is, you ha- that's really hard to p- push against because I'm like, I'm not an expert, you know. Right. I'm just like doing my best to work through the cards that I've been given. <laughs> right. And they're certainly not everyone else's cards. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, on that note, I would love. Uh, this is a privilege, but I would love uh, if you could share of a reading course. for the book. Okay, cool. And yeah, any context or no context. That you would prefer for I'm going to read just three paragraphs from the end of chapter five. You said it was chapter five. Yes, <laughs> as far as I know. Um, that just come at the end of a chapter where I was working through having some pretty intense dissociation and, I guess, things that fall under the mental illness umbrella. <laughs> um, and someone who I was my partner at the time came to take care of me and we end up having this conversation. Joshua relied on the natural world for metaphors and seemed to have an unending store of them. It was part of their bodiliness, part of how they kept me close to earth 
and also why they made me squirm. Dirt, shit, grass, rot, cum, sweat, drool, and mold. Whereas I was appalled by any proof of my own materiality, mortality, they were soothed by it. They didn't see the difference between themselves and organic matter. Goo, they kept saying. You're in your goo stage. I had lived under the illusion my entire life that within the chrysalis, the caterpillar's body simply stretched, shrank, and molted into a butterfly. I asked Joshua to read me encyclopedia entries explaining the process and learned that the caterpillar actually enters the chrysalis in order to eat itself alive. In that digestion, it becomes like a soup, liquid life that will ooze out of the cocoon if you slice it in half. When I learned the term self-determination, I imagined it involved an act of miraculous creation. But the caterpillar destroys itself to determine itself. The killing and the becoming are one and the same. Out of its eating itself, its utter decomposition, it is born. Thank you for that. Thank you. Um, so, A Year Without a Name is available wherever books are sold. <laughs> <laughs> I hope. <laughs> I love saying that. Um, and Cyrus Dunham, I, I guess I just want to say thank you so much for this book and thank you so much for this interview. Thank you and thank you for your questions and talking to me about Samuel Delaney here at the <laughs> Yale Club. <laughs> just kidding. If you enjoyed this episode of The Luminaries, let me know. Give me a five-star rating on iTunes. Write a glowing encomia. Share it on your Instagram stories. Email it to your Aunt Joan. And help make this series bigger and better with every episode. Thank you for listening, and let's grow together. See you next Tuesday. Bye-bye.